You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Thanks everyone for listening in today. With December upon us, most guys have either filled their tags or hung up the towel by now, but there's still plenty of people who are willing to brave the elements and it can pay big dividends. While late season strategy can often be very similar to early season in concept, there are still plenty of things that need to be handled different logistically. In this podcast, Boswell and I talk about our late season plans and strategies, how we deal with layering, staying warm and dry, altering our setups, and locating deer or even turkeys for those who have an extended fall season. First, a quick update on Boswell's Missouri trip. So I didn't, I actually ended up not even buying a tag in Missouri um, because just the days I was there, they had like three or four record breaking high temperatures. You know, for that time in December, I think we hit like 80 something, 81 one day. Um, so I hunted with my mom the first, like the first four days I was there. So Missouri is really weird. You have to buy, as a non-resident, you have to buy a firearms tag if you're going to hunt within firearms season. It doesn't matter whether you're using a rifle or a bow. You have to have a firearms tag to hunt in firearms season. And then if you hunt in archery season after firearms season, you have to buy another tag for as the archery tag. And each one of those tags is $225. So when I got there, there was like four days left in firearms season. Uh, so I hunted with my mom just to kind of judge the movement and see what was going on and how the rut was going. And we've seen a lot of deer, a lot of does, a couple small young bucks, um, nothing with any size or anything like that. So based off what I seen there and the high temperatures that was coming up for the rest of the time that I was going to be there, I just decided not even to buy a tag. Uh, I did end up, we did end up seeing one pretty good three-year-old 10 point um, in the backyard one day. Uh, but that was really about it, and that was you know right at dark basically. But you guys saw a lot of deer in general. Yeah, yeah, we hunted. So me and my brother, we actually own a little bit of land there, right next to my parents. We own 27 acres, and there's a we've got my dad plants a little food plot up there because there's an opening. It's probably maybe three quarters of an acre, maybe. Um, and he had it in winter wheat, rye, and some turnips in there as well. And I think at one time during that the last couple of days of firearm season, we seen about 26 deer in the food plot at one time. Hmm. Um, so 
that's kind of my mom's spot where she hunts. It's pretty easy to get to from our house and it's got a, a box blind built up there. So she runs up there and hunts up there. Um, she's only really got to walk about a hundred yards from her Jeep to get into the tree stand. So that's kind of her spot where she hunts. And then is it basically the area that you're at in Missouri, all like hill country? Describe the terrain for me. Yeah, so it's rolling hills, um, pretty much all dominant uh, oak hardwood timber. So oak hickory timber for the most part, uh, rolling hills with some pretty good terrain features in it. Okay. Yeah, I used to live just a little bit outside of St. Louis and I was growing up, so I'm somewhat familiar, not with that exact area, but I've, I've driven through that type of land quite a few times when I was yeah. younger. What part we're at just outside of St. Louis? Uh, the suburb we lived in was called O'Fallon. Oh, okay. O'Fallon, Missouri. Yeah, I know where it's at. Yep. Yeah, so I haven't been out too much. I've actually done more scouting than I have hunting in the past. Well, probably since uh, Minnesota firearm season ended. I was shooting my bow again, and man, it's a lot different shooting your bow, especially a trad bow when you got heavy clothing on. Just to get to anchor, it's so much different. I basically had to switch my shot process up, whereas before I did basically a rotational draw, like you would do just you know normal NTS archery form. And essentially what I have to do now is delineate that so that I have phase one of my shot is basically just get to anchor. And in order to get to anchor, what I have to do with my heavy jackets on is I actually have to pull back with my thumb sticking straight out. And when I get that string close to my jaw, I take my thumb, the back of it, and I hook it into my jacket collar and actually pull it out of the way until I get my pointer finger up to the corner of my mouth. And then once I'm there, then I just push my knuckle up into my uh, cheekbone. And from that point, I transition into phase two, which is transfer to hold and extend, you know, where I just basically focus on pulling that, uh, that release hand shoulder blade down and back toward the spine and then let the shot go off. But it took me a while to figure out exactly how I needed to do that because to start with my anchor was so inconsistent, even when I didn't have anything on my face that it made it pretty challenging. But I think I finally got to the point where I'm ready to, to actually start shooting. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot going on during the draw to have to be able to move clothes out of the way just to be able to get to your anchor. I couldn't imagine having to go through that the first time, figuring that out, that you need to basically use your thumb to swipe your collar out of the way so you can get to a good anchor and not have anything interfering with your string. Yeah, it's man, everything's so much harder when it's cold and everything's so much harder with a trad bow. So when you combine those two things together. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, that's something that a lot of people especially people who may not have used trad equipment before it really amplifies the smallest of things compared to a, a compound bow oh, and things sure. just like that. Just a draw cycle, um, you know, being able to draw a bow back, you know, adding layers with the trad bow makes a big difference. Well, and it really stresses the importance of practicing throughout the season. So many people fall into the, the trap of practicing up through August. And then once the season starts, they spend all their time hunting and then, you know, all of a sudden it gets later in the season and by the time you get off work, it's already dark out. So most guys just neglect going back to the range and basically they haven't shot their bow really all that much since back in August and they got two, three months where you haven't really been shooting. Yeah. Not even just that, you know, if you bump your bow sometime during the season um, or if you're, you know, your say your drop away rest, the rope that attaches to your drop away rest slips, the screw on it comes loose, you know, your rest may not drop out of the way. You know, for example, I took a couple real nasty falls on a uh, mountain bike with my bow strapped to my pack, 
And, you know, luckily my bow was still on, but I, you know, went out and shot it, shot it from various ranges. But in that process, I learned that apparently I did something to my, my spot hog sight so I can dial it out to about 70 yards. But when I get to 70, the wheel becomes really hard to turn for some reason. Hmm. So I don't know if I've bent something in my sight housing. So last week elk seasons this week, after this week, it's going back to spot hog to see what I did to it. Interesting. Yeah. For me, it's always, uh Another thing too that I always am a little bit worried about is just the temperature change. You know, when you sight everything in and you do all your tuning and everything in the summer, it's 75, 80, 90 degrees. And I mean, now you look outside and it's 15 degrees here where I'm at. I'm sure it's probably pretty cold where you're at too. Most of the modern materials and, you know, compound bows are pretty good. I mean, you might get a little bit of a change, but there, there shouldn't be too drastic of a change um, with a modern bow, but I mean, even like I had a 2005 Hoyt ProTech and that thing, once it got cold, I'd start, my elevation would be a few inches off from what it was earlier in the season. I'd have to compensate for that. And if you're shooting like a wooden bow, then it can really make a, a marked difference. Yeah. Even just your draw weight, you know, you, like you said, you practice a lot of times, you know, from July through September basically is when you practice. So you may be able to draw 74, 75 pounds easily then. But when it's 20 degrees and you've been sitting still for four hours and you go to draw that bow, a lot of times you're not going to be able to get it drawn back. Mm-hmm. Um, so because you, your body's just, it's cold, it's stiff, it's harder to draw that back. So, you know, whether you lower your poundage or you just shoot a lower poundage throughout the year, you know, that's something that a lot of people don't pick up on either. Yeah. My dad fell victim to that. I remember probably, <laughs> you know, eight or nine years ago, we were hunting together and we met up at the truck afterwards. Oh, did you see anything? Yeah, I saw a buck. Did you get a shot? I tried to, I <laughs> couldn't get the, couldn't get his bow back. So he had to just watch it go on by. And it's, it's not just with bows, firearms can fall into this, uh, you know, sighting guns in, in, you know, August, September, and then shooting them this late season. I think Iowa's second shotgun season just started, you know, that can even change the point of impact on your gun because of the rate at which the powder burns and some other factors that go into that. Um, so it can really impact your, you know, your point of aim and point of impact basically. Yeah, there was a couple uh, apps that I looked at for ballistics back when we did our first Colorado elk hunt for rifle. And a couple of the inputs that they had were elevation, which of course is the, the barometric pressure, and also the temperature. And, you know, you'd play around with some of those variables and you would see a difference in the ballistics based on them. Yeah, which the air is just generally lighter, so that can have an effect, especially with elevation. It's thinner, so there's not mm-hmm. much air that has an effect as well as the temperature. So from talking about what how the effects of late seasons can have on us and our bows let's dive into your late season tactics and what your specific tactics are going to this time of year you know it's mid-december now a lot of seasons go till the end of december you know into january and some go into february even so knowing that going into this what are some of your late season tactics that you really look for yeah so the big thing for me right now you know 90 percent of the people that you talk to say key on the food sources And sometimes you have access to the food sources. And in my case, sometimes I don't have access to the food sources, but a lot of times I'll still have access to the bedding and the paths that the deer will take to get to the food source. A lot of the public land around here, you might have um, agriculture and like the corn, a lot of the corn this year just got pulled. I think some places they even still have the corn standing, but the food sources you kind of have to key in on. And now that the snow is here, it's a little bit easier because you can basically backtrack from where the food sources are or you can backtrack from, you know, the closest place that you have access to. And 
at the end of gun season, it can be a really good time to scout because essentially the deer have just been pressured. If you go and backtrack, hopefully you have snow at that time and you can find out where those deer have adjusted their bedding locations to, then you can kind of back off a little bit and wait for it to get cold, wait for the snow to come in a little bit, you know, greater amount. And it seems like once the snow gets heavier, it's like the heavier the snow gets, the better. And the colder the temperature usually gets, the better. And the more amount of time that has elapsed since the last major hunting season, the better. So like right now, like I said, I've been doing more scouting than I have actually hunting. And I probably won't really start hitting it hard until the end of December when I have a really good opportunity to gather a lot of intel on exactly what that bed, that, uh, bed to feed pattern exactly is. So you're focusing more on that transition from the bed to the feeding because you don't have access to hunt the food source right. specifically. But you're still you're still using that food source um, to try to get between the food and the bedding, basically. Right, exactly. So do you look for any type of uh, browse feeding, like buds on trees? Um, I know you have a lot of snow cover up there, so forbs, things like that that would be on the ground are probably covered in snow. Um, but do you look for, uh, tree buds, anything like that, a woody type browse that might be above snow level as a forage base, or do you strictly rely on things like, uh, cut corn or standing corn where the deer are going to go to that way? I try to find agriculture sources because they're a little bit more predictable, but if I end up finding something that the deer are keying in on, or I just see that there's a lot of tracks that are, you know, kind of milling about that I got to get the feeling that they're feeding there on the natural browse, then yeah, obviously, of course, it's something to key in on. But yeah, agriculture just seems to be a little bit more predictable. Yeah, which I mean, completely makes sense. You know, you're not trying to bounce from, you know, area to area to try to find a, a browse based food source compared to an agriculture fields pretty obvious, you're going to see a lot more deer heading to that area because there's more basically forage in that area for them to go to. So you're going to have more chance of running into more deer if you're hunting that transition point like you are. Right. And typically, you know, the same thing that I'll do early season, I'll do also late season where I, is basically I try to get as close to the bedding as possible on that feed to bed pattern. And the reason I do that is the same reason that I do it in early season is just that the closer I can get to a bed, the higher likelihood that I'll see the deer during daylight and also the greater likelihood that they'll get by on a trail um, that's within range of the tree that I pick versus if I hunt the food source, they might come out right underneath me. They might come out 80 yards down the crop line. But the big challenge with late season versus early season is that with the leaves down and with the snow on the ground, everything just carries so much more in terms of the sound, you know, Whereas you could get away with a little bit of noise early season, you can't get away with anything late season. And part of it is from the, you know, the way that the sound carries, but also, you know, so much more of it too, is just the fact that the deer are so much less likely to tolerate any additional non-natural noise. And then with the leaves down, you can see a lot further too. You know, like I was doing some scouting yesterday, I was checking some trail cameras and, you know, just the difference in what I could see some places where I would set up early season, it's like there would be no no point in setting up their late season because you can see potentially where the deer would, would come from. You can tell they're not there. They've moved their bedding to some other location where they feel a little bit more secure. So yeah, that, that can all play into it. 
Yeah, so you mentioned on it, tree selection really changes from early season to late season on height that you need to get up the tree um, because obviously there's no leaves. You need to get a lot higher up in the tree. Um, and then the sound thing, you know, those deer have been pressured a lot throughout the year so far. And like you said, in the colder weather, the sound carries a lot farther than it does early season. You don't have the leaves to knock it down. You know, I can relate this more to turkey hunting. You turkey hunt before the really leaves start to bud out, you can hear a long ways. But as that turkey season progresses, you can't hear as far. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the same principle from the deer's aspect. You know, you got to get higher because now these deer have been pressured. So they're spookier. They're more likely to see you. And then they're more likely to hear you with that noise level. Yeah. So those are, are two really good points um, to bring up on the late season. And in addition to getting higher, one other thing that I try to look for late season that helps too is if you have evergreen trees around, choosing an evergreen to hang the stand in versus, you know, like a, a poplar tree or an oak tree or a maple tree can make life usually a lot easier. Just kind of tuck up into the branches of that evergreen and you can get away with a lot more movement. And your camouflage doesn't stick out quite as much. Or using that as just a backdrop, basically. So maybe setting up on a tree in front of that or even resulting to, you know, maybe a ground blind. If you had to back up into one of those, you know, use that as a back cover from a ground blind or just hunting from the ground, which to me seems to be a little bit more difficult in the late season just because you, they can see so much farther. They don't have the, the brush on the, on the ground level that has foliage on it to be able to block the view to you. Most of the time, it's super easy for them to see through the brush. Right, exactly. So what about time of day? Do you switch uh, what time you go to the stand? Do you still hunt mornings? Do you only hunt evenings? You know, Do you do anything along that lines um, to adapt to the late season? For the most part, it's pretty much an evening thing for me, just because that's the time that I feel I have the best chance. When I was younger, I tried a lot of morning hunts in the late season, and it never, it very rarely worked out. There is actually one pattern that I got on in one of the marshes that I hunted growing up where I did get on a morning pattern late season, and it was just because they were batting so far away from the food source that by the time they finally got back, it was, you know, half hour to an hour after sunup, which was, is not the norm um, from what I've seen. There's been far more times where I've jumped deer. They were already bedded when I've come in to try and do a morning setup that for me, it's just so much better of a numbers game to try and do it in the afternoon. Yeah, I agree 100% on this. Um, For me, late season is evenings only. And the reason behind doing this is a lot of the times in real cold areas like what you're in, um, most of the things are going to be frosted over first thing in the morning. So those deer aren't going to be out foraging on the basically frosted food source. They're going to be waiting until that frost burns off before they start to forage on that. So like you said, they're going to be bedded early. A lot of times, you know, they're going to be bedded you know, maybe right at dark or an hour after dark, and they're going to stay bedded until 10, 11 in the morning when the frost starts to burn off a lot of things, and they're going to get up and start to to go out and try to find these food sources and these forbs and stuff like that and, and forage on it then compared to first thing in the morning when it's still really cold. Yeah, and really the only reason I had ever figured out that early morning strategy was just that I went in on an early morning hunt and probably kick some deer out there on their way back to, um, on their way back to bedding that morning. But then on the way back to the vehicle, I cut a set of tracks where there was actually deer tracks inside of my boot tracks in the snow, which is an obvious signal that deer had gone past after I had come in there for the morning setup. And so at that point I didn't know if they came in right after I walked through 
or if they came after, you know, sometime where the sun was already up. And so I basically just sat over that same location. And then I started seeing deer and that was kind of how I got lucky in that sense. Snow makes it so much easier to, to track. Yeah. And for, for those of you who may be in the South, you know, say, you know, Missouri, Arkansas border or further South, this may not apply to you because it may not get as cold. You know, your lows may be into the forties. Maybe those deer are still going to be up and moving. Yeah. You're going to get down in the thirties and maybe even twenties once in a while, but for the most part, your lows aren't going to be as low. So you can potentially still hunt some mornings, especially if you do have really good food sources, um, whether there's, you know, soybean fields that have still got, um, a little bit of mass left in them from where they combined them or even, um, you know, natural forage, whether that's Forbes, um, something like uh, woody brush, uh, smilax, something like that. Um, you can still have a potential to hunt in the mornings, late season for those further in the South. I envy those Southern guys. That sucks hunting <laughs> late season up here. Oh man. I, after looking at some of your videos and, and hearing about you hunting in some of these zero degrees with wind chills, really cold. I'm like, I ah, no, uh, no thanks. I'll pass on that. Yeah. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's pretty miserable sometimes. I can only imagine. I mean, my, <laughs> I mean, I've hunted into February before, but I think that was, you know, Arkansas, if I remember right, their season goes into February, but you're talking like, you know, maybe thirties, you know, thirties to forties, that's late season cold for there. Yeah. You get down some pretty cold days and zeros and teens, but for the most part, it's relatively cool not extremely cold like what you're dealing with up there in the north yeah i think the only thing that would be worse maybe is if you're in one of the northern plain states like north dakota or uh maybe even northern south dakota where you not only have that really cold weather but you also have the wind whipping through that yeah open terrain (laughs) the wind makes it so much worse you got any exposed skin at all skin on your face starts to burn your eyes get all red Um, and even just holding the bow you hold an aluminum riser bow I have to take some like tennis wrap and wrap the riser and my bow on the grip just because otherwise you grab the bow and you're sitting there while a deer's slowly working into range. And after 30 seconds, your hand just is screaming on fire from the, the heat that's moving into that aluminum. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some products that some people are coming out with now that are basically like the, uh, the grips for, you used to put your hands on four wheelers, basically with a shield that you can put a mitt that you put your hand into when you drive a four wheeler. So your hand is covered and kind of be warm. Mm-hmm. They've started making those four bow risers now. Huh. So it's kind of like, a uh, what do they call those things? The, you put your hands in, you put a hand warmer like in a them and you put your hands in front of them. Yeah. A muff. They basically make a half of one of those that attaches to a bow riser. So you can put a hand warmer in there to keep your riser where you go to grab your bow warm and your hand warm once it's in there. It's not a bad idea. (laughs) For me, I laugh at it because it's like I've never had that problem. But then I hear you and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see why somebody wanted to make that. Yeah, with the the trad bow, I basically shoot with bare fingers with the tab just so that I don't have to change another thing that is so much more variable. And so I almost have to have a muff because there's no way I can have bare fingers. It's like one thing if you're hunting – you know, say out West, maybe you got a late season elk hunting or, or something where you're on the move a little bit versus if you're just sitting in a tree stand, not moving at all, it, it's a whole different ball game. I just hate gloves in general. I cannot wear them. I hate them. Uh, they just, I lose dexterity with them. I have relatively small hands. So almost any glove does not fit me. It's too large. 
So I've almost always used a muff of some sort with a hand warmer in it to keep my hands warm, whether tree stand hunting or out here. I'm trying to figure out a way to attach one to the bottom of my bino harness and make it pretty small so I can just kind of tuck my hands in there to keep my hands warm. I just really hate wearing gloves for some reason. And, you know, late season, it really sucks because you got to rely on that hand warmer to keep your hand warm. One thing I did for a DIY muff when I was younger was I took a real cheap muff from like Walmart or something that was pretty flimsy. And I basically just went on like eBay and bought a bunch of rabbit furs because they're pretty cheap on, <laughs> on eBay just to get those furs. And then I just rolled them all up and stuffed them inside that muff and it gave it a lot of structure. It was a lot easier to stick my hands in and it actually uh, was pretty warm as well. Yeah. So ironically today I run into Salt Lake and here in Salt Lake is the headquarters of uh, Black Ovis. Uh, camo fire the same joint business mm-hmm. and i was in there and i was actually going to pick up some of their liner gloves uh to try they're a real small lightweight merino wool glove but i seen sitka had a a glove they called the it was a waterfowl glove but they called it the collars glove mm-hmm. so it was a single glove that came up to about your elbow um, and it was a really insulated glove for one hand but on the like on the back side of your hand kind of the back of your hand to your elbow they had a built-in muff for your other hand Uh, so you only had to wear a glove on one hand and then you could use that as a muff for your other hand and i'd never seen that before and i saw that thing and i thought man this is genius that's a really good idea Uh, i like that it it is a really good idea because half the hard part is just getting your your hand into like a loose muff the ones that have more structure are a lot easier to use yeah, exactly. And to me, I thought that was a brilliant idea. Um, and the material, the fleece-like material they used on the inside of it was was really um, really nice. I mean, really warm for the hand. I'm guessing it wasn't cheap? I didn't even look at the price. <laughs> no, I'm assuming it was made by Sitka. It's not going to be cheap. I'm sure it was like 60-something buck for a single glove oh, for I, one hand, I'd, basically. I would bet that it'd be probably more than that, would be my guess. Uh, yeah, I would venture to guess. Even uh, the muffs are like the regular muffs. Like I got mine from Cabela's is like fifty bucks. Yeah, they're just they're expensive. They're you know, like you said, they're hard because a lot of times you want them like an elastic around the cuff so that they seal on your hand once your hand comes in there. But that also makes it hard to get your hand into. Mm-hmm. So it's you know it's kind of a a balancing act on to find one that's warm but easy to get your hand into. And there's just so many factors that go into them. Have you used just the chemical hand warmers or have you tried other, you know, like the Zippo, uh, lighter fuel based hand warmers or some of the electronic hand warmers? I've never tried the electronic ones. Um, I do have a Zippo hand warmer, but it puts off an odor to me. Um, so I really went away from it pretty quickly just because the odor it puts off. Uh, so a lot of times I just stick with the, uh, the hand warmer. Um, there's actually a new brand out there that's supposed to be really, really good, and I cannot remember the name of it. I read about it online here recently, um, but they're the, you know, basically shake, but they're supposed to stay warmer, longer, and get hotter for the most part. Yeah, I've gotten burned quite a few times from the, uh, you know, kind of the hot hands or the regular. When I say get burned, I mean like get screwed over by. I don't mean like actually get burned <laughs> because the effect is quite, quite usually the opposite. Um, they just won't get hot when you need them to get hot. And what I found kind of the best strategy for hand warmers that are chemical based like that is to actually open them up and get them to start warming up while they're inside like a warm vehicle where they have airflow. Cause some, you know, they need air to operate. So if you just open them up in the field and stuff them into a pocket, they're going to get limited airflow and they're going to take forever to heat up. Uh, so if you can actually get them warm before you stuff them in, whatever you're going to stuff them in. 
and then have that yeah, thing that you stuff it in have airflow so they can keep operating, but also, you know, have enough you know, thermal insulation that it doesn't just leak all the heat out. Yeah, that's two really good points about, you know, if you if you got to drive somewhere, start warming them up when you get in the car to start driving or in the truck to start going where you're going. Open them up, shake them up, let them sit in the truck, let them get warm or just, you know, put them in the edge of your coat pocket or something like that. And then don't choke them out because like you said, they do take air to generate the heat. A lot of people think once they start generating the heat, they can just completely seal them off um, and keep no air from getting to them. Well, that chokes them out so they don't put off as much heat um, or for the same amount of time as if they got a little bit of airflow to them. So it's a good every once in a while, take them out, shake them, let them sit on your leg for a little bit, let them get a little bit of air, then stuff them back in your muff or in your pocket or whatever you're using. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually have a couple of Zippo ones too. I actually thought they worked fairly well. The one that I had is basically now, I think I've burned it out. Like I've just used it so much that now it won't light anymore, but it worked really well for a long time and I ended up buying a second one. And when I get those going in the morning or if I'm going out for an afternoon hunt, I'll basically just light them up on the way. You know, right before I leave, I'll pour the fuel in, uh, get a lighting and confirm that I'm getting some heat coming off that burner pad. And then I'll just stick it basically right side up in one of the drink holders in my vehicle. Cause they say that you're supposed to basically let it sit vertical, you know, at least, at least for starters to help, you know, the fuel get wicked around properly within the unit. And so then by the time I'm actually at wherever I need to go, the thing's piping hot and I can just stuff it in my pack. So have you ever used the, they're not the rechargeable ones per se, like electronically rechargeable, but I've seen some that like you can basically boil them in water to recharge them. Basically you break something in them and yeah. then it crystallizes yeah. Who was and then you can reboil those? them. And somebody was showing me those. It might've been my dad or, or somebody, but you look at the idea and you're like, Oh, this is awesome. You see them work on like YouTube videos or something. There was some reason and it's not coming to me right now, but there was some reason where I basically said it was a no starter. Um, I couldn't remember if it was the time that it, uh, the time that it took to heat up or the amount of time that it actually stayed warm. I can't remember what it was. I think they only last maybe like two hours. They're pretty quick heating, if I remember right. They So they burn out. Lifespan of them is pretty short, if I remember correctly from what I'm thinking of. But I always see those and thought, man, that'd be a really good idea, especially for the number of hand warmers that I go through. You know, I can just get one of those and use it, you know, throughout the year, have two of them and, you know, use them during the hunt and then recharge them at night or that night, you know, when I'm home, basically boil them and get them recharged. Mm-hmm. But I've never, I've never had any experience with them. It, so it's the maybe one where any, it's the one where basically it has like a little silver, like coin looking thing in the, on the inside of it. And then you snap yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And it heats up. Yeah. So maybe if any of you listeners out there have had any experience with it, chime into us and let us know how they worked or what your your results were on them um, because obviously we haven't had any experience with those particularly but i'm interested in it for sure just to see what it's like yeah it seems like it'd be a really great thing to have like in your house if you have like a sore back or something because you pop it on instant heat but yeah i'd be interested to hear from somebody who's used them in an outdoor setting yeah so another thing for me um kind of getting away from the hand warmers uh but staying in the warp thing is just a south facing slope so if you're in any type of hill country where you can get on a south facing slope obviously it's going to heat up 
uh, first because, you know, it's going to stay in the sunlight more and longer. A lot of north-facing slopes, depending on where you're at in the United States, the further north you go, north-facing slopes don't even see sunshine until spring, basically. So finding those transition points from that uh, bedding to food source on a south-facing slope, uh, those are areas that I really key in on, especially in the winter. Uh, like this because like you said it's it's warmer those deer are going to be in the sunlight more obviously they want to try to get what little warmth they can out of that sunshine while they can yeah and the worse the winter is the more that's going to come into play if you got a mild winter you're somewhere down south it's not going to factor in as much yeah like even in missouri for the most part south facing slopes uh you know we tend to hunt them a lot more this time of year than we do anywhere else you may pass up a really good spot a really good funnel on a north facing slope for a mediocre funnel on a south facing slope so that's something to something to definitely consider and what i've noticed here in the uh in the north or i guess minnesota wisconsin is that depending on where you're at sometimes the food source can trump the slope until it gets like to a certain point of cold where it doesn't make any difference anymore like say if you've got like a, a creek or like a river bottom uh, that's surrounded by bluffs on both sides and you have crop sources on like the south side of that river, like the deer are still bad on you know, basically the north slope that's leading down toward that creek. They'll bed count on the hilltops there and then they'll feed that food source. But then like if the snow gets too deep or whatever, there's for some reason they're not comfortable moving from that bed to food source, then yeah, they'll relocate and start hitting those south slopes to, to bed on. Sometimes they don't start doing that until, you know, later in January, February when the hunting season's over anyway. At least that's what I've observed here. Yeah, and especially in northern climates like that, it seems like they tend to they tend to move their bedding a lot closer to the food source. Um, so whether they, you know, like in a situation like that, where you say you may have a, a cut corn field that may have a little bit of standing corn left down in it, but it's got a, you know, like a South facing slope that's right there on it. Those deer may bed, you know, just 50, 60 yards from that cornfield. So there's really not a good way to hunt that area, you know, whereas sometimes they may move, you know, maybe a couple hundred yards, but again, they may move to a South or even a North facing slope relatively close to that food source compared to where they're traditionally used to bedding, um, during the spring, summer, and fall months, they may move a lot closer to those food sources because it's just less energy they have to expend to travel from their bed to their food source. Um, and the winter like this, they try to conserve as much energy as possible. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I'd say the only thing that can the main thing that I've seen that can disrupt that is just hunting pressure. It, there's been deer that I've seen hunting in some of the more heavily hunted public marshes that I grew up on where you could have a bad winter and there'd still be a lot of hunting pressure throughout the gun season and some of those later antlerless only hunts and the deer are still kind of a little bit skittish. They'll still be betting, you know, a mile, mile and a half away from the predominant food source at that time of the year just because of the hunting pressure. But then if you had those same deer that weren't hunted as hard, they'd be sitting on the other end of that marsh right next to the food source where they had very limited amount of distance to travel. Yeah, absolutely. They are, you got to think about it from their survival aspect. They're trying to do everything they can to survive in these cold, harsh winter months. So things as simple as, you know, not having to walk as far to get to the food source. But again, if that food source is extremely pressured by hunters, that can easily push them to a different food source. So you got to keep stuff like that in mind. And so for me, you know, I had said 
before that I was probably going to hunt Minnesota uh, because their season ends at the end of December. But I've been seeing so much signs since I started scouting Wisconsin and some of the areas that I'm pretty familiar with now that I may just actually hunt Wisconsin instead. Um, there's a couple areas, basically, with the way Wisconsin's structured, they have most of their season goes through January 7th. There's some counties that have an antlerless only hunt that goes from like basically the end of December. It's like the 24th through like the first, like a Christmas to New Year's type of hunt where basically in that county, no matter what weapon you use, you have to shoot antlerless. And then there's other counties that don't have that where it's just a normal season. But then they also have metro subunits. So for me, there's a metro subunit right next to Hudson, Wisconsin, where they basically have a portion of Pierce and a portion of St. Croix counties that they have an extended season where basically the archery season goes through the end of January. So that gives you a ton of extra time. And by that time, there's really not that many people that are hunting anymore. So if you can stick on a pattern and find something, the longer that season goes and granted, if you're hunting after a buck, there's a lot greater chance they're going to drop their antlers by the time the season's done. But if you're just after, you know, like meat, then for sure, that's a, if you can stay in the cold, that's a good time to be out in the woods. So that's kind of my plan is just to kind of keep scouting, keep scouting until I'm on a pattern where my cameras are starting to say that, okay, the deer is starting to move more during daylight. It's been long enough after the last gun season, they're starting to move comfortably again. That's probably when I'm going to start actually going out and sitting in the stand. So is there a point for you in the late season when it kind of transitions from truly hunting to harvest towards more of next season, late season scouting, basically? So you're more going out just to scout for maybe the same time next year, or do you just continue to hunt late season tactics all the way through through the end of season uh, it kind of depends on how desperate i am for venison like this year i'm more geared toward venison so i'm probably just gonna try and stay mostly in hunting mode until i've gotten some more meat in the freezer and at that point i'll start to transition more to actually scouting because you know like you said this is a really good time to start gathering intel for late season next year because there's so much you can learn in the snow so for Minnesota, what I might do is, you know, especially if I tag out in Wisconsin and I have a satisfactory amount of meat that, you know, I'm comfortable with, that's when I may start scouting in Minnesota for some late season strategies that I can employ next year. Even if I don't plan on necessarily hunting there this year again, I might go in and try and bump some deer, find out where they're bedding, find out where they're feeding, walk some of those tracks to get, you know, from bedding to feeding. Cause it might not necessarily be the same thing that I would have seen back in you know, November or October or September, they might be for sure betting in different spots now and feeding in different things now than they would have been earlier in the season. So if I wait till spring, when I like to do my spring scouting right after the snow melts, I'm going to gather different intel. So yeah, I like to scout late season for late season, but venison's priority number one. And again, that's something that's going to change depending on where you're at and where you're hunting. So for example, like you said, things change a lot from you from September to now compared to somebody in the South, whether Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, um, somewhere like that. They're, the deer's patterns from, say, November to now may not change a whole lot compared to where you are. They're, you're going to get a lot more snow, which is going to completely change that deer's patterns. So again, some of this may not apply to you, um, but again, as long as you're out there and you're 
taking notes on what you're seeing and you're looking for food sources, these transition areas. Um, again, if you're in the north, the south-facing slopes apply more to you guys than what does down in the south. Uh, you just kind of kind of keep this in mind when you're looking at where you're hunting um, in the United States, basically. Yeah, and I think one thing to stress probably no matter where you're at is that the more severe it gets, the easier it's going to be to hunt. So if you can hold out and wait for proper conditions when you really have a, a good pattern, then that's probably going to be to your advantage versus trying to get as many sits in as possible. Yeah. So outside of, uh, we talked about kind of about the hand muffs. Outside of that, is there any changes to your gear into your system that you adapt going into late season like this? I mean, for the most thing, like you alluded to, it's, it's clothing based for the most part. As far as like climbing sticks, tree stands, saddles, that none of that really changes too much with the exception of for my climbing sticks. Whereas in early season, I've been using a lot of like the double step aiders on my climbing sticks. Late season, I'll drop that down to one. And sometimes I won't even use them if I don't need them just because it gets a little bit harder and a little bit you know, dice here to, to use climbing sticks and everything's slippery and everything's cold. If you bump your knee on something, it hurts a lot more than it would when it's warmer out. So I try and keep my stuff spaced a little bit closer together. I'd lean more towards bringing four climbing sticks with smaller spacing in late season versus, you know, I might've been able to space it out and get by with three earlier season. But otherwise from an equipment standpoint, there's not a whole lot that changes. I make sure that for sure, all my stuff is silenced as much as possible just because of the noise issue with late season. So being up there in the north where it gets really, really cold, have you ever used anything like the heater body suit or the, I think it's the IWOM or anything like that? I haven't, but there's, I know a lot of people that have them and do like them a lot. It's, they're really expensive, but it's a worthwhile investment if you're going to be doing a lot of cold sits. The thing for me is that I've built my layering system basically so that I can add or subtract layers depending on so many different temperature extremes that for me, trying to add in a heater bodysuit or an IWAM doesn't really give me a ton of advantage versus what I can already do. Whereas if I was somebody that was basically going to hunt um, a lot of early season and then also late season too, and I didn't really have a full layering system to get me there, that's when one of those types of suits makes a lot more sense or if you're just somebody that hunts in extreme cold like like colder than i would normally like to hunt in like if you're talking like below zero temperatures if you're layering with normal clothes and base layers and insulating layers you end up looking like the michelin man by the time it's you're all ready to hunt in that kind of climate and that can be pretty challenging to hunt in so if you're getting that cold then it starts to really lean more toward the those types of systems like the IWAMs and the heater body suits, just because then once the moment of truth comes, you're able to maneuver a lot easier and actually shoot more similar to how you would be able to shoot a bow early season. Yeah. So with that, have you ever tried any of the, uh, battery operated heated like vests? I know like Milwaukee makes one, the like tool company. And then I know there's some other companies out there that produce some type of battery operated heated vest or glove or system like that have you ever used anything like that no i haven't just because i, I like to try it i think it would work i think for that type of scenario or like the heater heated insoles for your boots i think those are all worth trying but you know like the milwaukee heated jacket i think they had a camo version i wasn't a huge fan of the the camo pattern 
that they used. It wasn't really a great late season pattern. It's more like a mossy oak type pattern that's going to make me stick out like a sore thumb in a lot of the areas that I hunt. And it's not like I can't layer up with some of the non-electronically powered jackets that I have already. So there wasn't really a good fit in my clothing arsenal for that type of system, but I think that it would probably work, you know. I've always seen those things as kind of counterproductive because, you know, batteries always have an issue with really cold weather. You just seem to lose your charge on batteries in really cold weather. And then here you are trying to use a battery-operated system of some sort in extremely cold temperatures. So I feel like it's it's losing two ways, basically. You're losing from the cold and you're losing from you know, basically the energy output into warming the vest or the jacket or whatever it might be. Yeah, but you got to remember too, the battery is insulated. It's not like the battery's just sitting exposed on the outside of the jacket. So as long as you make sure you're not keeping that jacket, you know, basically like sitting in the back of your cold truck or something, if you got that battery nice and charged and, and then you actually take it out into the woods without letting it really get cold until it's actually exposed to the same climate that you are, and then you heat that jacket up, then the battery temperature thing doesn't really become as big of an issue as it would if it was exposed. Never, never really thought about it that way. But like, I mean, for me, for the most part, like a lot of my hunting gear, I leave most of it in the truck for the most part, you know, like my, my last few outer layers, cause I don't plan on putting them on, you know, right when I get to the, when I get out of the truck to hike out there, there's layers that I carry with me. So for the most part, like my outer layers stay in the truck because once I climb down I'll take those layers off I'll walk back to the truck and then I'll just put them in the truck and then when I get home I don't typically carry those layers in with me so I leave them out for the most part but that's just me and my process I'm sure everybody's different on that yeah I usually like to bring my stuff in late season just because usually it gets a little wet because I've gotten snow you know on my pants on my boots a lot of times if I'm walking through an area that's uh, a little bit more wooded I'll have snow that falls down on my back of my jacket, f- snow that falls down on my head. And then basically everything that, that starts to freeze up, get a little layer of like frost on the top of your hat or something. And basically the only way to get rid of that is just to bring the stuff inside, let it melt, throw it in the dryer under a heat cycle, basically just to get everything dried again. I like going back out into the woods with nice dry, not necessarily warm, <laughs> but like if I, if I want to go and put on a hat that's got icicles on it, or the same thing with a jacket that's frozen stiff, like that just mentally isn't isn't very positive for me. So I like to keep my stuff dry as much as possible, which usually means bringing it inside and running it in the dryer. And I could really see for like you using like a, a your face mask if you had a face mm-hmm. mask, just breathing into that face mask in the in the moisture, basically freezing up, or in your jacket collar or somewhere where you might be breathing into, having that moisture coming from your breath basically freeze up in that. So I could really see that in an area like what you're in. Yeah, face mask is a big thing, which I hate using face masks. I'll try and avoid using a face mask if at all possible. But sometimes, sometimes if it's windy enough, like you just, there's not really any working around needing a face mask for certain temperatures, which is why if it gets really cold and, but more so really windy, sometimes I won't hunt just because it's so miserable for one. Uh, for two, I don't think the deer movement is usually so much better and cold and really windy versus just really cold and you know, a little bit calmer. So a lot of times I'll save my better hunts in the late season for those days where it's nice and cold and crisp versus cold and windy. And you're so miserable by the time you get back to the, the truck that you got to sit there and warm up for 15 minutes before you start driving. 
can't talk can't talk into the camera because your your jaw's numb. I've had that happen plenty of times. I can't blame any person for being for being picky on uh, late going out what days in the late season. Uh, that's one time where I think it is perfectly okay to be very picky about what days you go out into the field, like you said, based on the wind or things of that nature. Being late season, uh, like you said, it can be miserable to hunt, and that's something that you really just don't want most of the time. You go out to hunt to enjoy it for the most part. So if it's windy, cold, spitting rain, stuff like that, there's to me, I have no problem if somebody's like, hey, yeah, I'm just not going to hunt today because it's really crappy out. That is perfectly fine. I am one of those guys that will do that. <laughs> well, I mean, you can't kill them on the couch, but the other way of looking at it too is if you're sitting out in the tree in a time where you truly are miserable, What's going to end up happening more often than not is you'll end up getting surprised because you weren't ready. And then you're going to end up botching the opportunity anyway. And then you just went out and spoiled your opportunity and you were miserable doing it. Yeah, completely agree with that. You, like you said, you're going to be bundled up to the point where you, even if a deer shows up, you're probably not going to be able to get to your bow in time. You're not going to be able to do anything. So it's you know probably just worth the same to be able to sit in the house, uh, you know, work on you work on your bow, shoot your bow, practice there at the house, do something like that, be a little bit more productive with something like that than to be completely bundled up, frozen solid, not be able to to get an opportunity to deer. Or if you're hunting pressured public land, not really blow your spot out by, you know, alerting deer to your area and where you're at. Yeah. I mean, sometimes too, we say colder is, is better often, but sometimes if you got a pattern going where the deer are moving during relatively daylight hours, no matter what the temperatures are, if you get into that point of the year, then sometimes waiting for a little bit warmer day can almost be good too, because if you can get temperatures that are above freezing and they soften that snow up a little bit, then it makes it a little bit quieter to get into your stand. A 10 degree temperature change somewhere up like where you're at can make a big difference in the amount of deer activity that's there because, you know, like us, they see that as a warm spell. So they're going to get up and start moving. You know, like you said, if it softens the snow up, they're going to be able to paw through the snow to try to get down to some of the the food that may be under the snow, depending on how much snow you have, obviously. Um, but that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. The other thing too, you know, kind of along that point is another thing I'm trying to do this year, most likely based on what I found so far is I'll probably try and still buy a fall turkey tag for Wisconsin and try and fill that. And the turkeys too, like if you can find them late season, when you got the snow on the ground, it makes them a lot easier to hunt too, because for one, you can hear them for a lot longer distance than you can in the spring when you got leaves up. You can hear them a couple hundred yards away, you know, yelping through the woods. So that makes it a lot easier. And then two, their food sources for a turkey, they're, you know, that can be an even bigger thing for them than it can for the deer um, and being able to, to be protected and whatnot. So I'll probably try and fill one of those tags too, based on just the amount of turkey tracks that I've seen from the scouting that I've done so far. I think I have a relatively decent chance at filling one of those tags yet which the season in wisconsin goes through the end of january and there's a chance that i think it can go through like the first week of january so an extremely late season for the most part i mean i think most seasons end for the for the first part of january basically but i do know there's some that go into february and a lot of the metro hunts or urban areas they don't even end till march for the most part yeah did i say end of january or did i say end of december you said end of January. I meant end of December. Oh, that'd make a little more <laughs> sense. I couldn't imagine hunting up there at end of January. That'd be brutal. Yeah. Minnesota, it's only open through the month of October. November 1st, Holy it's done. Smokes. Yeah. You got a pretty limited time to, to kill a turkey in the fall in Minnesota. 
and you only get one tag, just like the spring, whereas Wisconsin, you can kill one for each tag that you get. Huh. Yeah. I know, like, Missouri, I think last time I checked, you get two fall turkey tags if you buy an archery license there, and you can kill two in the fall. Um, I don't target turkeys much late season or with a bow at general at all. I just have the tag in case it's an opportunistic. If a turkey walks by me, I'm going to shoot him. Yeah. So I like the turkey hunt just for the fact that it mixes things up a little bit and you can handle the cold weather a little bit more because you're not, you know, if I'm hunting turkey specifically, I'm not going to be up in the tree. I'm going to be on the ground. And that usually means I can stay a little bit warmer because I'm not sitting in one place for so long that I become frozen to it. Yeah. I've just, I don't know a whole lot of people that, that specifically target turkeys with archery equipment late season for the most part, or even firearm season. Um, you know, fall turkey seasons have really seemed to, to drop off and, you know, just the little bit of time that I've been hunting, you know, I can talk to my dad and they used to love to go out fall turkey hunting and now hardly anybody does it. Yeah. It's a good chance to fill a tag if you can get on a flock because there's so few people that actually go out and try and do it. And the strategy is different. For me, a fall strategy for turkeys would be one of two things. The kind of the the most uh, well-known turkey strategy for the fall is to kind of break the flock up and try and call them back in. But there's also some of these areas that I know well enough because I've hunted them so many times that I kind of get a feel for how the turkeys like to move through an area. And if I can basically hunt the turkey like I would a deer, whereas if I know where the flock is and I know where they're going to be, and I can set up somewhere along that area and I don't need to make a peep. I don't give myself an opportunity to screw it up with my calling. I'm more than happy with, you know, just basically trying to fill a tag like that, uh, too. So definitely some opportunity. Especially somewhere like where you're at, you know, they're, once they find that food source, they're going to continue to hit that food source turkeys specifically until that food source is completely gone because they don't want to have to go around looking for another food source. So if you've seen turkeys in an area of, feeding in that area you can easily do that ambush them coming to that spot and be able to do it that way and that would be a pretty good pretty good method mm-hmm. and fall turkey seasons usually give you the opportunity to to shoot a hen versus just the the spring gobblers which are um you know like one thing that shooting a hen can get you that you wouldn't be able to get with the gobblers like if you want to make a wing bone call most guys say that the sound from a hen wing is usually a little bit better than the sound that you get from a Jake or a Gop or a Tom. I have one hen wing in my freezer right now that I want to make a wing bone call out of from one of my friends, Shane Simpson. But, uh, yeah, I guess if I had a flock come in front of me, I'd probably still shoot for one of the Toms, but it's nice to have the option. There's so many turkeys in Wisconsin. It's not like I have to worry about the population taking a dive from me shooting one hen. Maybe this spring we'll get into a, a turkey conversation about I know a lot of places have just struggled with turkey populations on the decline lately. Uh, maybe that's something we can dive into this spring closer to turkey season. Yeah, I'd be interested in having a conversation like that. I know the places I hunt in Wisconsin, seems like there's more and more every year, which I'm not complaining about. It's like they don't even have to try. Wisconsin has so many tags right now for turkeys. It's so easy to get a tag in Wisconsin, and you can shoot multiple turkeys. It's like you would think that that would be really detrimental to their population, but it's like year after year, it's not like I'm seeing any shortage of turkeys in the places that I'm hunting. So I'd be interested to learn kind of more the biology side of things, how some of those seasons are set up and how some of those bag limits are set up. Because Minnesota is kind of the, the very opposite where no matter how many seasons there are, you get one bird 
and that's it. It's only a tom. And they have such a truncated season for the fall. There's lots of turkeys in the places I hunt in Minnesota too, but looking at the way that the seasons are structured, there's so much different. And yet Wisconsin still has a ton of birds. So it's be interesting for me to learn a little bit more about the, the structure of that. Yeah. And it's amazing how just across state lines or, you know, if you're hunting right on the edge of that state line crossing, how it can be different in such a close proximity to each other. Mm-hmm. So do you have any other late season tactics? Um, we can kind of dive back into this and wrap this up real quick um, that you would recommend, or if you want to go back over and kind of highlight the points that you brought up about what your key tactics to late season is. Yeah. I mean, just in a nutshell, I'd say late season, similar to early season, it's a, a bed to feed pattern. And if I can, usually the bedding locations are going to be in different spots than you necessarily were hunting them early season. So if you can find the new bedding locations, you can find whatever food source is hot now. Then you have two major pieces of the puzzle. The third location is just where you're going to set your tree stand up to intercept them along that route. And I like to always get as close to the bedding locations as possible to maximize my odds for daylight activity, but not so close that I'm spooking deer on the way in, which is a lot easier to do when the leaves are down and everything's cold and sound carries so much further and you can see so much further through the woods and up into the tree canopy. So I'd say that's kind of the, the basis of my late season strategy. The only other thing that I try and do as much as possible is try and scout at least as often as I hunt so that by the time I'm ready to sit, I'm, I've, you know, kind of carefully planned when I'm going to go out so that I'm actually going out in the right time versus going out in the wrong time and putting more pressure on deer that have already been pressured so many times throughout the season to that point i want to try and make sure that when i go in they're actually going to be moving when i expect them to move and they're going to be doing it during daylight yeah it's another point real quick i'll touch on before i wrap my side up um you know for those areas that don't get a lot of snow when you get snow take advantage of that get out get boots on the ground cruise your leases cruise your public lands around you the areas that you hunt use that to your advantage i know Georgia and Louisiana and some of those places down in there got some snow this past week. Uh, you know, get out there, take advantage of that while it's on the ground, see where the deer are moving, find those late season patterns that they're in. It may change a little bit if that snow stays there for a few days, but if you can get out that first, you know, 24, 48 hours that snow is on the ground, pattern those deer and see where they're going. Use that to your advantage, especially since you guys don't get to see snow a whole lot. But for me, you know, my late season takeaways, get high, hunt higher than what you normally would, Stay quiet because uh, that sound carries a lot. Look for that south-facing slope. Um, hunt from that bedding area to that food area. Again, whether that's a natural browse forage, uh, agricultural field, or even just a green pasture that you know may be on a south-facing slope that just the snow melts off of. You know, hunt that transition point. Stay on that south slope. Get high and stay quiet. That's my late-season strategies. So if you guys have anything you want us to hear, want us to talk about, any listener requests, anything like that, hit us up on Facebook, the YouTube channel. Um, if you want a specific topic you want us to, to cover, um, feel free to hit us up. We'll try to try to get it covered when we can. We also want to remind you guys to subscribe to the DIY Sportsman YouTube channel and social media pages, as well as the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe to the podcast network wherever you would normally download your podcasts, and please leave us a review on iTunes.